Again, it's just great to be together and gathered all together like this. Uh, I, I know that the Lord is pleased, right, when, when his people gather together as one. So it's so good to be together like this. You know, here at, um, at Baseline, we've been doing a, a sermon series through the season of Lent that we have called Garden to Garden. And uh, the, re- the idea behind this is that the Bible starts in a garden, Right. If you've read the Bible at all, even probably if you've never read the Bible, you uh, you know that there's the Garden of Eden, and and God places mankind into this beautiful garden. And the idea behind it is that He desires for His people to flourish. He wants them to flourish, and everything is right. Mankind's relationship with God is right. Relationships with one another is right. Relationships with creation is right. And even relationship with the self is right. And, and uh, the kind of the biblical word that's used for this is this word shalom, which we often kind of translate as meaning peace. And yes, it's that, but it's, it's more than just that. It's, it's a, a wholeness. Again, that everything is as it should be. And that's what that first garden looks like. And it's how God intended the world to be. You know, I often say that it takes God about uh, two chapters, which is like three and a half pages to create the world. And then it takes mankind one chapter, about a page and a half to totally mess it up. (laughs) And then the rest of the scriptures is God putting it right. And so what had been created as a place of flourishing and a place of wholeness becomes a place of sin and brokenness and pain. And we know this, right? We, we experience this. We, we read this on our news feeds. We see it in the newspapers. We experience it personally that things are just not as they're supposed to be. And in the Bible, what happens then is so much of the imagery of the Bible then becomes of a desert or a wasteland or a drought or famine. And you see this interweave throughout all of scripture. But there are places where it is a garden. There are places in scripture where God reminds his people this is what it was supposed to be. There are places where there's a gardens of rest and renewal. There are places where a garden is portrayed as worship. There's a place where gardens is about justice. And so God in his scriptures through these garden imageries reminds people this is what it was supposed to be. And on this Easter Sunday, we end up in a garden again. And it's a garden that has a tomb. I'll remind us all how we get there. I'll back up just a little bit to remind us how we get to this tomb that's in a garden. There was a man named Jesus born about 2,000 years ago. History shows that, yes, this man was born. And for about 30 years, his life was fairly normal. But then around age 30, he started gathering some disciples who started following him. And he started talking about the kingdom of God in ways that people just didn't quite understand. In ways that really drew them to this man. He talked about God the Father in a way that people just didn't see. 
a God of love, a God who cares about them. He, um, he did miracles. He cast out evil spirits. He did all sorts of amazing things. And he claimed to be the son of God. And this is what got him in trouble with the religious leaders of his day. And this is what caused them to uh, have him be arrested and tried and then crucified on a Roman cross. And that is how his life ended. Now, if you had been uh, walking or outside of Jerusalem on that day and you had seen Jesus on the cross, it wouldn't have felt all that different than other days. You see, the Romans crucified lots of people to kind of keep the people in line. But in the spiritual realm, what was happening on that day was just, just in, uh, Chris talked about it. it tore open everything because Jesus was taking on my sin and your sin. He was taking on the brokenness of the world on his body and he was giving us the grace and forgiveness that we so desperately needed. On that cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, it is finished. And Jesus had hung on that cross for hours, but then he died. And then I want to pick up the story there that's written in John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along or a phone that has the Bible on it, you can turn to John 19. And we're going to pick up what happens with Jesus on the cross. Starting at verse 38. It says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby... They laid Jesus there. Have you ever thought about what an incredible privilege it was for these two men to take the body of Jesus off the cross? That these are the two who get to take our Lord's body off of the cross. There's a couple of interesting things that said about both of them. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you look at those four Gospels, here's what's said about this man. He was rich. He was a prominent member of the council. He was a good and upright man. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And here in John, it says that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Have you ever been a secret disciple of Jesus? We can do this sometimes in our work or our neighborhoods. That, that people won't even know we're a disciple. Joseph of Arimathea was so nervous about what people would think about him, of what the rest of the council would think, knowing that he 
believed in Jesus, that he was a secret disciple. And then here in the Gospel of John, it mentions that Nicodemus was with him. And Nicodemus, it says this about him, that he was the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Again, not knowing, wanting anybody to know that he was there. Both of these men had lived their lives in secret following Jesus. And yet on this day, when Jesus dies, it's like, no, we're done. We don't care who knows what we believe. We are going to go and take this man's body off the cross. They were no longer secret disciples. I've thought a lot of this last couple of weeks about Nicodemus especially. You know, Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus at night. It's recorded back in John chapter 3. It's some of the most powerful words we have that Jesus says. You might remember how it goes. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. And says, rabbi, hey, we, we, I need to know more about what you're talking about. We believe or I know that you are, are from God because nobody could do what you have done. And then Jesus says this, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? What do you mean to be born again? I don't understand what this means. And they go back and forth a little bit more. And then Jesus says to him this, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, which is a reference back to the Exodus, he says, the son of man, myself, will be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Again, Nicodemus doesn't quite understand it. And then maybe the statement that is best known in Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. And I believe... That Nicodemus walked away from that encounter with Jesus a little bit more confused than when he started. Have you ever gone to church and walked away more confused than you did when you started? It happens. I apologize. <laughs> but a seed had been planted in his heart. A seed that grew. A seed that had gotten Nicodemus to the place where he would actually be there to take Jesus' body off of the cross. And so he's there with Joseph. And they're taking Jesus down. His broken and bloodied body. They lay it down in some linen. They put spices and they wrap it. And they lift him and they carry him to a tomb and they put Jesus inside the tomb and they roll a large stone back in front. And with that, I believe that some of Nicodemus's hopes and dreams died in that tomb too. Because I believe Nicodemus thought this might actually be the Messiah. He could be the one that we've been waiting for. Those things he talked about, the eternal life and being lifted up and that God so loved the world. I'm believing in that. But now I have just put his body in the tomb. And we can probably relate, can't we? We've all 
experience death and discouragement and disappointment. We've all experienced those sinful habits we just can't break that just keep a hold of us and we can't get rid of. We've all experienced despair and possibly many of us feel like we have buried some of our hopes and dreams. But on this Easter Sunday, I want to remind you this, that the tomb is in a garden, that death is surrounded by life, that despair is overcome by hope, and that sin has been defeated by grace. For the tomb is in a garden. So think about those words. The tomb is in a garden. Now, can you imagine if that image and that concept were actually true? I mean, can you imagine if the tombs of our lives were actually located inside a larger garden? Because they don't feel that way, do they? Um, most of the time, our lives feel like we touch moments of garden living but our moments of garden living are actually located underneath the backdrop of a larger tomb. You know, we might touch uh, hope or happiness. We, we might even have seasons of those things, but, but we know how fleeting life is. So we're always wondering when's the other shoe going to fall. And, and we know that, that it can't ultimately last because life is so temporary. The, the jaws of death are always bearing down on us humans. So it, it would make more sense if the text said that the garden was inside a tomb. But that's not what the text says. In John 19, 41, it says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new Tomb. So the tomb is in the garden, and that means something. Can you all travel back in time with me for a minute? Just And you're thinking, can you all back up to way back in the olden days when we were all in junior high or high school? And I know for some of you that's today. <laughs> but, but if you remember English class uh, in junior high or high school, you remember that when we studied literature... We were taught about archetypes. An archetype, if you recall, is the original pattern or model of something. Thank you, Nikki. And, and everything that's similar to an archetype that follows is either a copy or a representation of the original. So if somebody is an archetype, that means they embody all of the essential attributes of the original. So Abraham was the archetype of faith. In literature, the, the most common archetype that we learn about is the hero archetype, which is why whenever we're hearing a hero story, it sounds just like all of the other hero stories that we've ever heard. So whether it's Pixar telling the story or Marvel or someone else telling the story, they all sound the same because they're all telling the story of the hero archetype. Well, psychology and personal experience tells us that, that every person creates these, these mini archetypes. 
these many guiding figures or messages um, that they pattern their lives after. Here's another way of describing it. Another term is a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is an overriding story that informs all of the lesser stories. So a person's meta-narrative is the story that helps them make sense of the lesser story that they're living. And we all have these many archetypes or these meta-narratives that are informing our experience as humans. And some people have tragically depressing and painful meta-narratives. Everyone who I've ever loved has abandoned me. Therefore, I am unlovable. Um, everyone has left me, which means everybody will leave me. That, that's a terrible meta-narrative. Some of us have that meta-narrative. And by the way, that informs our relationships. Um, I've known super funny people who as children, they somehow heard the message that it was their job to make everybody happy. It was their job to lighten the mood or be the life of the party. And they realized it's on me to make you smile. And that's how I find my worth. You know, a lot of super funny people are actually carrying a lot of depression or anxiety. And sometimes it's because of these internalized pressures. Sometimes people have the opposite meta-narrative. They were told that you can do anything and anything you set your mind to, you can accomplish. And that's a pretty amazing narrative to grow up under. Um, and then, of course, some of us have um, competing narratives that are a mixture of positives and negatives. For instance, when I was a boy, I grew up in Washington State. I was born in San Gabriel, but I grew up in National Forest land in eastern Washington. And the, the book series that I loved the most as a boy was the John Carter of Mars series. And for me as a boy, John Carter was the archetype of what it meant to be a noble, courageous, valiant man. And so I grew up, I read all of the books probably a dozen times, and I grew up with this, this, this archetype and this narrative, I want to be heroic like John Carter. But, but somewhere along the way, some other things got snuck in there too, and I also developed this deep insecurity so on the one hand, I want to be a hero like John Carter of Mars. On the other hand, I know I'll probably never measure up. So you're a champion, but not really. And um, have I given you enough examples for all of us to have a quick 30-second therapy session? <laughs> Can you identify the narratives that you've been living under? Can you identify some of the messages that have been guiding you? Because... It's dangerous and tragic when our narratives or the archetypical stories that we've been following don't align with ultimate reality. See, in reality, people would still love that child whether they were funny or not. In reality, just because some key people left you, it doesn't mean that everyone will leave you. And just because our gardens have been swallowed up in tombs, it does not mean that the tomb is the larger backdrop. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. The scriptures present Jesus Christ as the ultimate archetype for human living. In fact, um, in theology, we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
which means that Jesus shows us what God is like. If, if anyone ever wonders what the Christian God is like, it, he's Christ-like. The Christian God is like Jesus. Jesus put a face on God. Jesus also showed us what God's intention was for humanity to be. Um, uh, the, the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Some theologians have said that Jesus is the pattern son. Um, according to uh, Galatians 4, 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba means dad, father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Have you ever sensed your spirit aching for that? Have you ever sensed your heart crying, Abba, Father? Have you ever perked up when somebody mentions that there might be a different narrative? There might be a different story that makes a different amount of sense and has a different outcome for your life. You, you, you don't have to be in bondage to issues or problems or, or traumas for the rest of your life. You can be God's child. You can be an heir alongside Jesus. See, if what the Bible says is true, th then you are not planting your gardens inside a tomb. You just have a few tomb-like moments inside a larger garden. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to see it, something needs to occur. And Pastor Don already talked about it. When he talked about Jesus encounter with Nicodemus, he mentioned the term born again. Now, now, the term born again is kind of a troubled term today. There's a little bit of baggage attached to the term born again. You know, for some people, it sounds like religious lunacy or a fringe group or maybe even a political party or something like that. But Jesus introduced the word. We didn't make up the word born again. That's not a church word. It's a Jesus word. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he said, very truly, I tell you, this is John 3, 3. Uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So, so that means you can't see the larger garden until you're born again. And then he said in verse five, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So, so we, we not only can't see it, but we can't enter this larger garden until we're born again. So the Bible tells us that the wages... That means the price tag or the consequences of sin is death. And we all know that's true. You don't have to be religious to know that's true. If I lie to you enough times, it will kill our relationship. If I sin against you, if, if I do damaging things, it brings death. Sin always brings death. And that makes sense because sin is simply actions or steps that take us away from God's desire. And if God is indeed the source of life, like the Bible says, any path that moves away from him is necessarily moving toward death since he's life. So to the, the non-born again, the, the path does end in a tomb of physical and spiritual death. 
But, but according to Jesus, again, it's not a church message. According to Jesus, for the born again, there's sight. There's a new narrative. There's a new way of living. There's, a, there's an open door to the kingdom. So, so what does it mean to be born again? Does it mean going to church? Does it mean singing a bunch of songs, whether you like to sing or not? I mean, what, what does it mean to be born again? Um, because if it's actually a thing, I want it. If there actually is a larger narrative that can make sense of the tombs in my story, I'm all in. <laughs> Nicodemus asked that same question. How can someone be born again when they're already born? You don't enter your mother's womb a second time to be born. Well, a little later in the scripture, in John 10, 9, Jesus said these words. He said, I am the gate or I am the door. And then he said, whoever enters through me will be saved. And he could have just as easily have used the word born again. So here's how it worked. Don mentioned that God created a perfect world, which, which by the way, that explains why you ache for perfection. You, you don't long for something that you've never had. You long for something that you've touched and you know is there and you want more of. You long for beauty and romance and, and, and peace and joy and perfection because you were created for that. And, and yet we messed it up. And, and even if you don't believe in the Adam and Eve story, we've messed up our own worlds and we haven't been able to, to fix it. Today, um, in our world, we have answers for everything about life except how to live it. We have brilliant inventions and broken relationships. We have great intentions and terrible actions. We need forgiveness. We need a new beginning. What we need to be born all over again. So God, seeing our need, and being our father, stepped into the story to do what we could not do for ourselves. So, so Jesus wrapped up all of the sins of the world into his own body. And on the cross, when he allowed himself to be crucified, he was killing sin with him. In fact, it's kind of like the scene in The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember the Fellowship of the Ring? When Gandalf falls in the mines of Moria? If you've read the book, you know that at that particular scene, Gandalf falls with this demon Balrog. And in the book, they fall together to the abyss. And they're holding each other and they're warring as they fall to the abyss. They both fall to their death. Only Gandalf comes out into new life. That's following the Jesus archetype. That story always works because it's, it's pointing back to the original. That's what Jesus did. He stepped into our shoes, bore the sin, the grief, the pain, the mistakes, and, and, and then he became the door. And since he paid the price, he has the authority now to re release pardon, to release new beginnings, and to release forgiveness. And, and so through Jesus, here's how we do this. We, we admit, I have, I've messed up. I have failed. I have failed her, and I've failed you, and I've failed myself, and I've failed God. Forgive me. Make a fresh start in me. And then the most amazing thing happens. When we do that, God actually takes his spirit, his nature. God actually fills us with his own life. It's like in, in the Old Testament, they built the tabernacle and this place of worship and God's glory filled the temple. Well, we become little miniature temples of the Holy Spirit and God's life actually fills us. 
We start to think his thoughts and see things differently, experience something differently. It's like we've been born all over again. And we realize that, that we matter and we're not alone in the universe and we have a purpose and we have a destiny and there is a larger story that's greater than the tombs that have overshadowed us. Let me have the worship team rejoin me. Why don't you stand with me? Listen, Don already mentioned this, but you don't need to have any religious faith to believe in Jesus or to believe that he taught and preached and performed miracles and died on a Roman cross. That's history. You don't need any religious faith in your life until you're standing at the mouth of a tomb and you need to know if there's actually something greater than this death that has plagued me. You don't need any religious faith for Good Friday. That's just history. You don't need any religious faith on Quiet Saturday when you're just waiting and wondering. That's just history. But you need religious faith on Easter Sunday to believe that what Jesus said all along was actually true that he was telling you the truth, that he is indeed God stepped into your story to rescue you from the tombs of your story. So back in the old church days, when I was growing up, we used to do these altar calls where we would end the sermon and then we would let people come up and they would kneel at the altar. And I still love to do that, but kind of in modern church circles, we, we, we've kind of shifted the altar call to a closing song where we make a space through worship to respond to the message. So I'm going to come back up in a minute and just pray for all of us one more time. But as the worship team uh, begins to play and leads us in another song here, um, let's respond to this. If you've been walking with Jesus for your whole life or the last six months, awesome. But you still have those meta-narratives that might need to be adjusted. You still have some archetypes that might need to be replaced. You, you might still be staring at... Um, some grave type moments that need a fresh perspective and an understanding. And listen, if you're here today, and if you came with a friend, if you came with a family member, this is a moment to wrestle with this. We're not just a couple hundred people in Claremont talking about this. Millions and millions and millions of people through church history have felt themselves brought back to life because of Jesus. And this could be a morning where that happens in our lives. So, so let's respond and let's reflect as we sing.